Those of you who know Chuck know patience isn't his strength. In the late 1970s, lines were long at West Coast shipyards for those eager to build Alaska king crabbers. Instead of waiting to build the Bountiful, Chuck and his partners, Mike Jacobson and Corey Ness, contracted with Max and Marine, a barge maker on the Ohio River in Tell City, Indiana, 600 miles from saltwater and thousands of miles from Alaska. Listen in to learn a little bit more about the Bountiful and how Bundrant and his partners had to buy the shipyard out of bankruptcy to complete it. Chapter 8, The Bountiful, A Lesson in Shipyard Management Mike Jacobson was kind of skeptical about having that boat built back there, Corey Ness recalled. He didn't think they could build a fishing boat in a shipyard where they built barges all the time. I don't know when I went back there the first time, but they were working on the boat. I'd met Chuck at the office at the foot of 28th in Ballard one morning, early. The boat was just about done, and we were going to tell City. For one thing, they'd never built anything like it back there before. Tell City sits on the southern border of Indiana, on the bank of the Ohio River, a stone's throw from Kentucky. Roughly 600 miles upstream from New Orleans in the Gulf of Mexico, it was an odd place to build a Bering Sea crab catcher processor. However, there weren't a lot of options in 1977, when Chuck Bundrant and his partners decided it was time to double the size of the Trident Crab Fleet from one boat to two. The Billiken had proven itself and also paid for itself on the King Crab grounds, but it lacked the space, layout, and capacity to work effectively as a multi-species catcher processor. Two boats were better than one for staying on the crab, and a boat that could be reconfigured to process salmon, herring, and cod would prove a valuable asset in the years ahead. Though nobody could be certain what species would pay off in the future, Bundrant built flexibility into the Bountiful's design from the beginning. He also used what he'd learned the hard way aboard the Billiken to improve crab processing aboard the Bountiful. Key to the vessel's success were naval architect Helgi Christensen and Bundrant's close friend Pat Albee, whose nuts and bolts brand of Getter done know-how proved indispensable to the design and installation of the processing line. One thing was for sure, the Maxon shipyard had done virtually nothing but build barges, dredges, and other square-bowed river workboats since it was established in 1944. Building a blue water boat with a pointy end would be a new experience, and building a boat for fishing the Bering Sea half a hemisphere away was like building a spaceship for a distant planet. We were all skeptical about building it there, Bundren admitted, though it didn't hurt anything that I had lived in Evansville about 50 miles away. I looked at their steelwork, and the steelwork was good, but I think their eyes were bigger than their stomachs, and they bit off more than they could chew. But it all worked out pretty good in the end. As noted earlier, the shipbuilding industry was extremely busy at the time, and it wasn't just a matter of picking a shipyard that could build the Bountiful for a reasonable price. It was a matter of finding a shipyard that could start building it right away. Many of the popular Northwest shipyards had long waiting lists, 
Marco Shipyard in Seattle, for example, had a waiting list of more than a year. For a new crabber, that was a long time, because a good fisherman could pay off a vessel in two years, and the sooner it got on the grounds, the faster it could be bought and paid for. Ironically, the market was so tight in 1977 that Corey's brother, Magni Ness, was also on his way to Tell City to secure a contract for a crab boat he wanted to build for himself. It was literally a race between the two brothers that winter to get a new boat on the books at Maxon. As luck would have it, there was a big snowstorm and Magni was stuck in Louisville, Kentucky when Chuck Bundrant made it to Tell City first and signed a contract to have them build the Bountiful. As a result, Magni Ness took his design to a Tacoma shipyard and waited his turn. Winning the race to Tell City was not without drawbacks, and at one point, Bundrant and his partners wondered whether they'd get a boat out of the deal at all. Halfway through, and more than a million dollars into the project, Bundrant got a call from Chicago. A guy from Maxon's Bank, the Bank of Chicago, called me up and said, You better show up here Monday morning and bring your counsel. I didn't even know what a counsel was, Bundrant admitted. He told me, A counsel is your attorney, dummy. So I grabbed Hartley Paul, a corporate attorney who'd helped us put the Trident Seafoods paperwork together for $600, Bundrant recalled. We flew together with Mike Jacobson all night long to Chicago. We got to the airport and headed to the First National Bank of Chicago, in the same building where Lee Iacocca had his office. They had us come to the credit department, full of big bankers in pinstriped suits. We were supposed to meet at 9 o'clock, so I went up to the counter at 9, and they said it would be a few more minutes. It wasn't until 11 or 11.30 that they finally brought us in there, and Mike and I were both pacing the floor. They said, we're at the point where we're putting this company into bankruptcy. What are you going to do about it? About that time, Mike started laughing. Bunrick recalled, I didn't say anything funny about this, but Mike just kept laughing and said, we've got to go outside. I said, Mike, what's so goddamn funny? He said, I'm too pissed off to cry. We'll figure it out. So we go back in there and Mike asks them, is there a place where we can eat? They pointed us to a place named Wendy's down at the corner and told us we'd reconvene at one o'clock. They had a big corporate dining room down there, but they didn't invite us into it. So we went to the fast food place down the street. I'll never forget, Bunrod said, that was the greasiest hamburger I'd ever had. We went back up to the bank and I didn't find out until later that afternoon that we had them by the balls and I didn't know it, Bunrod recalled. I had already talked the superintendent of the shipyard into giving me title to the boat. I needed the title in order to get the 10% tax credit on the new construction, and the superintendent gave it to me. I figured out later that's why Mike was really laughing. By the time the afternoon was out, I'd bought the shipyard for $5. The Bountiful was the only substantial asset the shipyard had to its name, and the bank was hoping to put the squeeze on Bundren and Jacobson by seizing the shipyard's unfinished vessel and forcing the prospective owners to buy it from the bank. The only hitch was that the shipyard no longer owned the vessel. They'd already given title to Bundrant. With no ship to seize and sell, the bank was suddenly open to selling the shipyard too, but there were more than a few strings attached. With a half-finished boat and a bankrupt shipyard, Bundrant was in a jam himself. 
He needed a shipyard to finish his boat, so he stepped up and bought the whole package. For Bundren, the decision was simple, but the financing was a bit more complicated. I called up my banker at Seafirst, Bundren recalled. He said, get your ass back here. We've got about one and a half million dollars invested in this boat. I'm not going to be taking over any losses. I'm not going to finance you. Mike was thinking I was half crazy too, Bennett recalled. Here I'd bought this shipyard for $5 cash, but there was three to four million dollars worth of debt that came along with it. You talk about a leveraged buyout. That was a real LBO. For a guy who didn't know what a council was, Bundrant was wheeling and dealing pretty fast. One of the stipulations of the sale was that I had to keep the guy who'd been running the shipyard, Bundrant recalled. They were really impressed with this guy, but the first thing I do is catch him in a shady deal. He's got an under-the-table deal going for $20,000. Ralph Emerson was a sales manager, and his secretary, Cindy, was keeping an eye on the books. Cindy got to wondering why the president of the shipyard, Jack McKay, was getting personal checks when it seemed like the money should be going to the shipyard. She thought this was kind of strange, and she'd made a copy of this check because she was going to be depositing it in his private account. In the early days of Trident, and for a long time after that, Bundrant didn't hold a lot of warm feelings for men who wore suits outside a church and rarely got their hands dirty. That the bank had ordered Bundrant to tolerate McKay's rule at the shipyard didn't help matters at all. He didn't even live in Tell City, Bundrant recalled. He was too good for that. He commuted from Louisville and always wore these big, expensive suits. Cindy, the secretary, wasn't fooled by his wardrobe either. She called me up and said, I think it's kind of strange that somebody would send Mr. McKay a personal check for $20,000. I said, it is. Can you make me a copy of it? And she already had. So I called up Ralph Emerson and said, change the locks on the door. I'll be back tomorrow. The next morning, McKay came up to the door and I said, you're fired. He said, you can't fire me. You heard what the banker said. I run this place. I said, no, you don't. Not anymore. You're fired. He tried to sue me for lost wages and some other things Bundrant recalled, but he wound up dropping the case real quick. He said he didn't even know the guy who wrote the check, but we looked up his expense account and saw he'd had a $500 dinner with him. We thought it was pretty strange that he didn't even know this guy after buying him a $500 dinner and taking a $20,000 check from him. So we got control of the company, but I was having difficulty finding anyone local who wanted to take the responsibility to run it. Finally, it was Ralph Emerson who said, I'll take it, and he stepped up to become an officer of the company. After that, we turned the company around. In fact, that's what saved our ass in the early years when we made $3 million on that shipyard in one year. But I'll tell you, you've got to convince people they want to work. Another problem we had at Maxon was the unions, Bundant recalled. There were several of them, and man, they were all strong and strict. There was the painter's union, boilermaker's union, electrical union, the machinists, and the laborers. If a laborer picked up a light bulb, the electricians would walk out. If a machinist picked up the wrong tool, the boilermakers would walk out. Eventually, I had a standoff with them one Friday afternoon when one of them walked out again. I said I was going to shut the yard down and lock them all out. Monday morning, they all show up for work, and I told them, you're going to have to vote as one union. 
and I don't want any more walkouts or the yard's going to close. We had an attorney draft up an agreement that said they'd vote together as one union. All of the various business agents were ready to sign it, except for the head of the Boilermakers. I'm not coming down there, he said. You're going to have to come and get it. I was due to get the paperwork in Evansville that night, so at five o'clock in the afternoon, I pulled up to the Boilermakers Hall, and he's upstairs in his office. He had the lights shining on the bottom floor, and I knew he was watching me. And real loud, he said, Come on up. I've got this piece of paper he needed to sign in this little folding briefcase with a zipper at the top. Inside is my 9mm and this sheet of paper. So I'm going up these steps, and I'm scared to Jesus. This guy had a neck on him that was huge. Right away, he started ranting about how he'd been a union agent in Chicago, Kansas City, and St. Louis, and he'd never been treated like this before. You son of a bitch, he said, you're not going to get away with it. I said, I'm sorry, you don't have to sign this piece of paper if you don't want to. Well, this guy takes the piece of paper and lays it on his desk and reaches into his desk drawer. I could see he's got a little short-barreled 38. I reached into my briefcase and cocked the 9mm back. I'm not going to be run over like this, he said. I'm not going to be run over like this. You better put that gun away, I said. I'm getting nervous. I'd have shot right through that briefcase, and I was starting to shake. Then, the son of a bitch signed the thing and handed it to me. But I was still nervous about getting out of there alive. So I reminded him, you've got six shots, but I have 13. I backed down the steps and got in my car. I was so damn scared he was going to rub me out that night that I drove all the way back to Tell City and spent the night with Ralph. But that was the end of my union problem. We hope that you enjoyed Chapter 8, The Bountiful. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be the first to know when our next episode, Getting Stuck, Welcome to Alaska, is released on Wednesday, February 12th. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams. <laughs>